is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms for a time But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Tudor Advocate's new podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. It is the last week of February and time is running out for Scott Morrison to call the 2022 federal election. The latest he can realistically push back to is May 21st and he's going to need to give the Electoral Commission eight weeks warning beforehand. Welcome to the Batuta Advocates' new podcast, Decode, a series that aims to break down and analyse federal politics for those who have either tuned out or never tuned in. I'm Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate. And I'm Errol Parker, the editor-at-large. Now, today marks the third interview profile of the Decode series, and having already interviewed Labor's Christina Keneally and the National Party's David Littleproud, we're going to mix it up a little and interview one of the rarest brands of politicians in Australian politics, a straight white male from a major city. Thank you for joining us today, Adam Band, leader of the Australian Greens. Thanks for having me. <laughs> now, first up, Mr. Band, given the uh, fact on paper and the profile I've just given you, on paper, you basically have lived the same life as a young Tony Abbott. Can you please explain to us how you found yourself leading the Greens? Yeah, so I um, didn't think that I'd end up in politics. I sort of grew up in South Australia and then in Western Australia before moving over to Melbourne and was quite sort of happy for a while working um, working as a lawyer, again, you know, breaking the mould, um, uh, representing low-paid workers and clothing workers, taking on you know, corporations like Nike. That was my job and I was happy doing that. That was sort of my commitment to social justice. And then I heard about this thing called climate change and sort of over the years, and I kind of had this view at the time that, uh, well, you know, if it's that bigger problem, then surely our governments are doing something about it. And the more that I learned about it, the more that I realised just sort of how serious it was. And in 2007, I think 2000, around about then, I um, decided to leave my job um, as a lawyer and just start running in elections for the Greens and took a couple of goes, but eventually got elected in 2010. For me, it was just like, go all in to uh, try and do something about tackling the climate crisis as well as pursuing all of those social justice concerns that were important to me. And um, the rest, I guess, is history. Well, it is interesting, though. Like, you hold the seat of Melbourne with a tighter grip than Bob Catter does in Kennedy. Where do you think the kind of shift in the mentality of the people in Melbourne to essentially depose a long-standing Labor incumbent and to go with the Greens? Where do you think that happened? Yeah, look, I think a couple of things. One is that there has been this sort of view amongst the, I guess, the old parties for a while that um, the same politics become a bit of a race to the bottom and the idea was every election campaign was who can beat up on refugees the most. And this is in pre-marriage equality days. It was like they both voted against marriage equality and it was really, I think, politics in many ways was quite a, a grim place for many people and it was very much a race to the bottom. And I think for places like Melbourne and also others around the country, but Melbourne especially, 
there was this sense of, no, well, we want something more and we want politics to be about what's good in us and sort of fighting for that. I think the second thing is that Melbourne is a really diverse electorate and we've got, for a while there, we had more public housing than any other electorate in the country. You know, the boundaries changed, but we've still got sort of more public housing than anywhere in Victoria, as well as having, you know, some real estate that's pretty expensive and some people who are on high incomes. But I think there's a real sense in Melbourne that we're all in this together and we've got to make sure that everyone is looked after. And I think those values, I think, and the, and the sense that politics was sort of pushing in the other direction and going ever more rightwards meant that when we came along and said, no, we're actually, we're not going to take people for granted. We want to lift everyone up. Uh, we need to make sure that we make life better for people in public housing as well as tackling the climate crisis. It, uh, and we're not going to go backwards, you know, where we stand on refugees and on marriage equality. I think it resonated. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Greens started as kind of a conglomerate of the anti-nuclear movement from WA and the anti-tree loppers from Tasmania. Would you say you and your team are responsible for Melbourne now becoming the heartland for the Greens? When I mean, you walk around Queensland, when people talk about the Greenies, they think that Bob Brown came from Melbourne on that convoy. You know what I mean? Melbourne is viewed as the Green heartland, even though it, you know, it's a movement that's spread from environmental kind of uh, movements. It was brought together from all over Australia. Yeah, look, I, I don't know if I'd say that. Certainly where the vote is highest, but uh, I grew up in WA. The first protest that I went on was one against the nuclear-powered warships. They pull into the port in Frio from um, the US. And I remember, I think I was at high school, going on a, a demonstration down there behind a, a big banner. Everyone in WA, when the, when the warships pull in, everyone sort of poles comes along and goes yeah. for a walk on the and it's like it's a big sort of tourist thing and we had a little banner saying this is a death ship not a tourist attraction and I remember um, as we were walking down there you know a family uh, as we were walking past sort of saying to their kids hey kids kids quick come and have a look come and have a look at the stupid people like as we were all marching past and it was right. sort of from then so like, they were that, from that, the that... north side of the swan were they more uh, <laughs> your peppy grove nedlums types you know yeah yeah, yeah look perhaps um, the, I mean I guess from that that anti-nuclear and that forest campaigners that like had many in many respects it was uh, strong in WA as well as in Tasmania yeah. like it wasn't just I think a Tassie thing for me was a big part of my upbringing and there was a lot of that in in the area um, when I was growing up when I was at high school and so I think yeah it may be that in areas of Melbourne is where the vote is the highest but bits of um, Brisbane and uh, in particular now where we've got members of parliament in the lower house, you know, that, that bastion of democracy, the Queensland parliament, we've managed to get two Greens and a local councillor in there. There are other pockets around the country now, where as well as Tasmania, obviously, uh, and indeed in New South Wales, our vote's going up. So I probably wouldn't say um, the heartland's in any one place now. Yeah, because I always kind of found that a bit strange, how, how the Tasmanian Greens like to see themselves as being, you know, the most authentic Greens when the only place in Australia that's elected, you know, a dinky die, died in the wool communist is, you know, the good people of Ingham in central Queensland. Yeah, and I think there's a bit of a misreading of Queensland going on a lot in politics. I think there's this view that people in Queensland are inherently conservative and it feeds in a bit to what I was saying before about the race to the bottom in politics that's happened over many years. There's this view that 
amongst many commentators but also participants that we have to go more and more rightwards in order to attract votes, including in places like Queensland. And our, our view is the opposite. Our view is that especially in Queensland, there's a, a strong understanding of what is wrong in politics and a strong sense that things are broken and need to be fixed and that it's only working in the interests of a few people. And so we've run really strongly, including in Queensland, on the basis that we need to make the billionaires pay their fair share of tax so that everyone can lead a better life. And that message is resonating and it's resonating amongst people that might be lumped in by others in the anti-politics brigade. That is that message that, hey, it's time for politics to take on powerful interests instead of just showing fealty to them is something that that we find resonates. And, yeah, I think there's a big, big misreading of Queensland going on by many commentators. Now, what you're saying to us, really, I mean, you use a different kind of parlance, vocabulary, but it's very similar to what we hear from Bob Catter. I'm not sure if you've heard that before. I guess for all the reasons you've explained, there's probably good reason why he's been elected with the same kind of margins as you have been down there in Melbourne. But what I want to get to is the, the Greens have a reputation of being abolitionist, you know, of not wanting to compromise and not wanting to debate and massage things out. Do you have a working relationship with someone like Bob Cutter? Can you see yourself working with people from different parts of the country and different value systems? But, you know, Bob Catter and I were literally on the same bus yesterday driving around Parliament. It was an electric bus and Bob is starting to become a convert to saying maybe we need to start manufacturing electric vehicles like electric buses in Australia and revitalise the manufacturing industry because that's where the market is. Now, that's stuff that we, we've been saying yeah. before. And so like, with Bob Catter, there's issues that I'm just vehemently opposed to him on is the way he talks about refugees, the way he talked about marriage equality. Like we've had some really strong stand-up arguments about that and like I think a lot of those things are really offensive. But on some of those economic questions where like now they're saying, well, actually, hang on, there's a bit of an opportunity here, including in places like Queensland and also fighting against this neoliberalism, free market economics, the idea the dog-eat-dog dog economics is sort of where you throw everyone to the wolves and say the market will decide and government's got no role. I mean, I reject that, and he probably from a different part of the political spectrum in some ways rejects that as well. But I think there is, yeah, I can uh, work with other people who want to say let's the market isn't the be-all and end-all. Government's about making sure that everyone can live a good life, and if we have to rein in some of the excesses of the billionaires and big corporations, well, you know, that's what government's for. But can you see the Venn diagram between your party, your voters and other people in the country? Can you actually see that? Because the Greens don't have your reputation yeah. for seeing themselves in other people. Yeah, look, I can. And I'm, I know that some will say that's our reputation, but I think our records speaks differently. Like the in 2010, we were in when I first got elected, we were in a power-sharing parliament and it was us, Labor and Andrew Wilkie as a city independent but also two country independents, Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor. And we spent a lot of time sitting and working out how to get on the same page and, and no one got everything they wanted in that parliament, but we got some really good stuff through and we got some really good stuff through on climate I got a bill through, I don't know if it's the only private member's bill to have ever passed both Houses of Parliament unanimously, but I got a bill through to protect 
firefighters who were getting cancer, something I'd seen during my working time, been able to take that and sort of put it into practice and get a unanimous bill passed through Parliament. And we did it, right? And I think we've got a pretty clear-eyed understanding about what is needed to get legislation through Parliament and that involves working with others. I guess what my view would be, you don't compromise on your values, but you do have to understand that you've got to work with others um, to get things done because we're increasingly in parliaments where no one party has a majority. So would it be fair to say that, you know, the political reputation of the Greens and, and their messaging is distorted quite a fair bit in the mainstream media? Well, I think there's our, our opponents will say a lot of things about us and they, you know, they presumably done their focus groups or done their polling and they've worked out what lines they think will work against us because they see us increasingly as a threat, I guess, um, to them electorally. But I guess all, all I can do is keep saying, hey, look, you know, especially at the moment where I think we, we desperately need to turf out this government, it's a terrible, terrible government, but what we also need to do is push the next government to do better and part of that is pushing but part of it is also saying we're here to improve not to block and um, all I can do is say have a look at our track record we've actually achieved a lot and things that we've been pushing for for a long time are now being taken up by others like a federal ICAC for example there was times where it was only us pushing that and now it's um, almost becoming a thing that everyone uh, is accepting that we need and so I think our track record does speak that we do well in sticking to our values and not compromising on those, but also understanding, you know, you've got to play well with others if you want to get stuff done. Can you tell me, there's a big wave coming this election from our end anyway. This is what we believe. I, I think a couple of these independents are going to get up. At least one will, you know, in, in the inner cities, in the moderate liberal electorates mm. with voters that look a lot like yours. Can you tell me why these Allegra spenders and uh, Zoe Daniels and, you know, whoever else has just been announced this week, they're popping up one by one. Why didn't they nail their flag to the Greens? I mean, it, it makes sense that they wouldn't nail their flag to Labor because their voters are not Labor voters. But they're talking about a lot of the same things you are talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, two things. One is I, I think there's going to be some Greens elected to the lower house as well in this election. And I think we're in a, with a really strong position of ending up in balance of power in both houses of parliament. And we're campaigning really strongly in places like Griffith and Brisbane and Ryan, but also in Richmond in New South Wales on the north coast where we hold the seat that's sitting in there and uh, we, uh, we've we got a terrific candidate there and some others in Melbourne as well, including McNamara. We're, we're really pushing hard in lower house seats as well as in the Senate and so I think this is a, a real opportunity for us for some breakthroughs. I guess secondly... I work well with the climate independents who are also called climate independents who are in parliament at the moment. But I think one of the things that differentiates us, I think, is on these questions of economics and social justice, there are some, perhaps not social justice, but social social policy and economic policy, there's probably some difference. Like we won't vote for tax cuts for big corporations, for example, whereas some of those independents might in part reflecting the electorate that they come from. But in many respects, some of them have got climate policies that are better than, you know, better than the Labor Party's climate policies, which shows, mm -hmm. I think, an appetite amongst some conservative voters to, to really take up the mantle on climate. So we work really well together as a crossbench in Parliament across, you know, different parts of the political spectrum, different parts of the country. 
and in many of the places where the independents are running, like the, a lot of the independents have good climate policies, but I guess economically, conservative economic policies as well. And so whereas we in the Greens believe very strongly we're tackling both the climate crisis and the inequality crisis, so we're going to find differences of opinion around things like, you know, we want to put a new tax on billionaires, I presume they don't. We oppose corporate tax cuts and tax cuts for the very wealthy, they supported them. So there's going to be a number of areas where I think we will disagree, but on key issues like climate, I think it doesn't stop us working together. And so, and I think to the extent that we're seeing climate being put on the agenda at this election in new and interesting ways, I think overall that's that's a net positive. It's kind of a given though that these small L liberals, uh, their voters and the independent candidates who like the idea of public housing, they just don't like it next door to their gorgeous terrace house. How has public housing enriched your electorate, Mr. Bant? Because as you were saying before, you have one of the highest rates of public housing in Australia within your division. Yeah, look, I spend a fair bit of time in and with people who live in public housing. And one of the really good things about our area is that although there's, like, there's still work to be done, there's not actually too many invisible walls between the people who live in public housing and people who live over the road in, in private housing. And people will really come together for example, when there's been there was a proposal from the state Liberal government a while back to sell off some of the land uh, down at the Fitzroy public housing because, of course, you know it's worth a mint now. So they just saw that land and thought we, we'll sell it off, and it was a, like the whole community came together to stop it. And I find and in public housing we've got a, a big group of people who've come from Horn of African countries, um, big Muslim population in public housing as well, and it's doing door knocking around a time of uh, when the iftar dinners start at the end of Ramadan is, is actually it's pretty good. Um, you, get, you get fed very well and uh, you get invited, invited into houses for these amazing end-of-evening feasts. Um, I started on some days fasting during the day so that I can enjoy it even more because it's like it's, it's a good spread. But so it's, like it's actually I find it one of the, you know, yes, there's challenges, but I find it one of the, sort of the warmest places, I think, to go and spend time not only campaigning, but um, during the term as well. And our office is sort of just a, a short walk from quite a few of the big public housing towers as well. So there's someone in the office every day, several people in the office every day, you know, certainly pre-COVID times, a lot of it's done now on Zoom. But we've really, I, I think it's been an eye-opener for everyone to see, oh, when you've got a Greens representing you, we're going to fight for... Things like lifting, lifting New Start, for example, or housing, just as strongly as we're going to fight for climate, and people have responded to it really well. So it's yeah, it's a good place to be. Now it sounds like you've got a good gauge on your own electorate, and uh, you know your own community that you're working with, and that sounds like you and your team. I mean, we can say that the previous election results speak for themselves, and it sounds like they will again uh, in 2022. But how do you go about managing the Greens as a brand? You know, you've got a lower house seat. That's just you. You're the leader of the party. You're hoping to get a few more seats this electorate, but the rest of Australia is quite different to your electorate, you know, and the Greens are a nationwide party. So how do you go about tackling any blind spots that might be carried, uh, you know, throughout the Greens as a whole around Australia? You know, you've got a religiously diverse, kind of economically diverse electorate. That's not something you would associate with the Greens from our end anyway. Uh, You kind of look at the Greens candidates and staffers as, you know, private school kids, straight to university, straight to the Greens. 
And, you know, those aren't the kind of political staffers or politicians that we imagine would be able to work with a, a vast cross-section of society. So how do you stamp this out? Well, you know, because we're talking about a party that is so idealistic. How can you cast a wider net? And how can you kind of ensure that the people working with you do the same and, uh, you know, aren't dismissing any Australians out there? Yeah, I think that that's probably in some respects, a bit of an unfair characterisation of the history of the Greens and well, of people in the Greens and the history of the Greens. Like the name the Greens came from the Green Bands, which were put on by unions in uh, New South Wales in particular, but also in Victoria in the 70s and 80s, where, they, where it was like there, was, there was natural and built heritage that was about to be demolished by developers and governments, and they came and said, no, we're going to stop this from being... Developed And the person who ultimately went back and founded the Greens in Germany, Petra Kelly, had seen this happen. And from the phrase, the Green Bands, came the name the Greens. And then it took off across the world. And that Tasmanian party that you were referring to morphed and changed their name into into the Greens. And so in my mind, that history of like community campaigning around social justice issues and workplace issues together with environment have always been there from the beginning. And so we've always had a really strong strand of both in um, and at sometimes you know one might get prioritized more in public debate than the other but we've always had them there and I think again it comes back to the question around us how do we stand compared with others who are running but that we've got four four pillars of our party and not only like grassroots democracy peace and non-violence but not only looking after the environment, but social justice is there as well as one of the four. So I think it's probably it's always been ingrained in us from the beginning. So I don't find those those kind of conflicts that you're talking about really actually happening because people understand that we're a party that says, look, we've got to tackle all of these crises together because you can't just prioritise one over the other. They're all interlinked. So do you have to do a lot of work, you know, on the ground to learn about all of these things that you're campaigning on? Because you're campaigning on quite a lot of things. You've got quite a wide net there. The Liberals don't have to worry about that. They've got lower taxes and, you know, common sense, as they would call it. It's pretty straight down the line. They've got a few things that appeal to a large number of voters, and and they campaign on that. But, I mean, if we're talking social justice, environmentalism, gay rights, refugees, the climate, tax policy, a whole range of things that you're saying are just as important as one another, how do you actually polish up on the language that needs to be used in these circumstances on behalf of all of these people that you're campaigning on behalf of? Because when you're rallying on behalf of people, you need to get it right. So how do you make sure you get that right and you're not talking on behalf of people and talking out of school? Yeah, it's a good question and one that is part of my job, uh, I guess, to grapple with. And I'm strongly of the view that our challenge in the Greens is not our platform and what we stand for, it's getting the message out. And that is a challenge that we face. And in terms of how we do it and what we say, in terms of how we do it, we're a people-powered party and one of the things that we've learned from Melbourne and that is we've seen in, uh, it's been the key to our success in growing in places like Brisbane and New South Wales as well is that we get out, turn our people into advocates and we run really grassroots campaigns and we door knock and we speak to people on the phones and that is actually a really good way of changing people's votes. In terms of what it is that we say, I guess in a nutshell, would say we're facing an inequality crisis and a climate crisis in this country and we need to tackle both. And simply our message this election is that we need to make the billionaires and big corporations pay their fair share of tax 
so we can get dental into Medicare, build affordable housing and have free childcare while taking real climate action. That's going to be something that you'll probably you know, all get sick of hearing from us over and over again during the course of the election. But you're right, it is important to distill it down because we've got a very narrow window to get through and it's even more challenging for a smaller party like us that doesn't take those big corporate donations so we don't get the same you know, we're not we're not Clive Palmer, um, you know, buying ads in in on on every medium that you can. So distilling it down to tax the billionaires and the big corporations to get dental into Medicare, make life better for everyone, and build affordable housing is something you'll hear us saying a lot. Moving forward into the next Parliament, if you've still got as much power or even more power than you have now, what's the number one thing you'd like to achieve in the next parliamentary term? Uh, getting action on coal and gas. Like tackling the climate crisis is critical. It's part of the reason, as I said before, why I'm in this job. And I think it's getting more and more urgent. And if we can get this country to stop opening up new coal and gas mines, I would count that as a big achievement. We got real action back in 2010 on the climate. And if we're in balance of power in both houses again, which I expect we will be after this election, we'll be pushing really, really hard for real climate action. And I guess my, and my number two would be getting dental into Medicare and building more affordable housing. That's That would be on our social list as well. Well, that sounds like a pretty good pitch you've got there. Dental is quite important. A lot of people know how expensive it is. And I suppose you're proposing that people like Clive Palmer pay for our dental and we can lump it all into Medicare. Yes, Yes, it's like, you know, I want Clive Palmer to send fewer text messages and pay more tax. We're going very clearly to say it's time that the billionaires paid more tax because if we do that, we can fund things like getting dental into Medicare or building affordable housing and now's the time to do it. And we're seeing these billionaires basically try and buy elections and it worked last time. Like I know there's lots of discussion about what happened at the last election and why did the Conservatives stay in power? And a big part of the answer is just Clive Palmer and a checkbook. And there's something wrong in this country when billionaires can buy elections. So, yeah, we're going to take them on head on. And, yes, they can help fund things like dental into Medicare. And just lastly, Mr. Bant, one, one question I do want to ask you. What is a conspiracy that you believe to be true in politics? There's a lot out there that people think are conspiracies, people dismiss that aren't real. I mean, but you, you've basically just told us that billionaires are buying our elections. That sounds like a conspiracy that the average punter would throw around. You've just confirmed it here. Is there anything else? And is something something else more sinister at play down there in Parliament House that you can confirm for us? I would put that up there. I think that there's uh, one of the things that's been the eye-opener for me is that the big corporations and the billionaires do literally patrol the corridors of Parliament. Like you see them walking around, coming in and out of ministers' offices and telling them what to do. And sort of it sounds, you know, it might sound simplistic that big money and big corporations get to tell politicians what to do. And in some respects, of course, it's more complicated than that. But in other respects, no, you see them walking in and out of the offices, patrolling the corridors. The ministers leave here and they go and end up and jobs in boards in these very same corporations as a bit of a revolving door. So I would say that something that on the outside might sound a bit like being a bit too conspiratorial is is actually, sadly, far too much the reality up here. Well, you heard it here first. That was Adam Bant, leader of the Australian Greens. He's hoping to pick up a few more seats this election, uh, maybe hold the balance of power, and he has 
can we clarify? You have ruled out a Labor Greens coalition. Is that correct? Well, I don't think that I want to see the Liberals out. Just want to see the Liberals out totally. And I think that Labor's made very clear the approach that it will take, that you know, it doesn't want to talk to anyone else and so on. I don't think we would find ourselves in a like Liberal National-style coalition with the Labor Party where we're all voting the same way. There's things that are important for us, like not opening up new coal and gas, treatment for refugees, et cetera, that we would always want to maintain our independence on. What I want is a working relationship with a new Labor government with a uh, with the independents on the crossbench, should they be there, so that we can kick the Liberals out and take real action. And I think just because you don't sign up to a formal coalition, like we saw in 2010, a really good working relationship, and it's that that I want to bring to the next one. We will be there to, I guess you get two for the price of one um, voting for Greens this time. You kick the Liberals out because we won't support them, but we would work with and push the next government to do the things that people expect, like taking action on the climate crisis. And that's a good note to end it all on. Thank you for joining us, Adam Bant. Thanks a lot. And if you like this interview and you're interested to learn more about some of the things we spoke about, learn a little bit more about federal politics, the way things work in Canberra, and uh, prepare yourself for some of the decisions you've got to make this year in the lead up to the 2022 federal election, you can find a lot more stuff like this on the new Batuta podcast channel, Decode. Decode is a new series brought to you by the Batuta Advocate where we debunk, we break down, analyze, and of course, decode federal politics using language that the everyday Australians can understand and provide them with a more accessible look at federal politics. We don't need to be kept in the dark, even though the media and the politicians would like us to stay out of this conversation. It actually comes down to us this election. So tune in and you can learn about things like polling, preferences, You can figure out the role the unions play in our politics. You can figure out the role the church plays in our politics. We'll be analysing each major party. And, of course, we'll be interviewing candidates and sitting politicians and asking them to answer for themselves. Thank you for listening. 